In a series of videos, we have been looking at the material Know Your Bible Better, which you can download for free at the website ncmi.net. This is the fourth video in that series, and we're looking at chapter 3, which you find on page 24 of the material called Discovering the Central Application of the Bible. And we've gone through how the Bible transforms us in chapter 1 and understanding how and why we must pay attention to the Bible. And in chapter 2, we looked at discovering the central message of the Bible. And the central message of the Bible is the one message about the one God and the one way of salvation. And in this section, we're going to look at what that means. How do we apply the many different contexts, the many different things that we read in the scriptures? How do we understand how we should apply those scriptures? It was an exercise at the end of the last video that began to uncover that by looking at the context of a scripture, we can see how to it should actually be applied, and how others have often applied scriptures in incorrect way by simply quoting the scripture out of its context. So by now, if you've followed these videos, or if you've followed the material that you can download, you should have come to two major keys in reading your Bible better and interpreting what it says. The first of these is that you should allow the Bible to transform you. You approach the Bible with faith, with trust, and belief, in God, that he's using this through his Holy Spirit to transform you. And number two, you should ask what the original author was communicating to the original readers and how that is applicable to today. So we've unpacked how to come to grips with what the original author was communicating in the previous video, but now we want to look at application. So here is the one application that you can always rely on when you're dealing with the Bible. There may always be several applications to a scripture, but there is one that you can always rely on. If you use this as your starting point, you begin to uncover the other applications. And this application actually points to the entire theme of the Bible, and it's found in John 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Ultimately, this is what the scriptures are revealing to us in myriad ways. To believe Jesus means we trust him for our salvation through the final judgment that is to come. And it also means we trust him through all the aspects of our lives. We trust that what he says is right. We do what he says as a result of that trust. And we trust that he will shape us and form us and guide us and help us and be with us until the very end. So you get to this application by asking this question. What does this mean for me? What I'm reading right now, what I'm looking at right now, what I'm hearing right now from the Bible, what does this mean for me if I also have a relationship with God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? This is what Jesus himself said in John 5 verse 39 and 40, speaking to the Pharisees, speaking to those who knew their scriptures but were applying it incorrectly. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, about Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And often we can actually make this mistake. We turn the Bible into a series of principles or ideas or laws or, or, or worldview or a complicated theology. Yet we still refuse to come to Christ himself that we may have the life we're desperately seeking by indulging in all these things. So this is why Jesus has to be your start and end point, your central hermeneutic when you are studying and reading the Bible. 
So even though the Bible is traditionally divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament, which we looked at in detail in the last video, it's helpful to also study the Bible in three parts. And there is a diagram you will find on page 26 of the material. And you can see the diagram shows us three parts of reading the Bible. There, The Old Testament, why Jesus said and did what he did. The Gospels, what Jesus said and did. And Acts to Revelation in the New Testament, how the church interpreted it. I like this analogy that I was shared with once with the Bible. You can think of the Old Testament being the front cover and the New Testament being the back cover. And the Gospels, what Jesus said and did, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John being the spine that we see here on the Bible. And this entire Bible, you can either read like this, where everything is equal, Old Testament, New Testament, what Jesus said and did, or you can read it like that, where we actually place greater prominence on what Jesus said and did and allow this to interpret the Old Testament and interpret the New Testament, be the lens through which we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus as the central, a central point, the central hermeneutic, the central lens of the scriptures. So look at that diagram again, and we can see that God the Father has revealed himself through his word. The Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the living word, you see. What we have is the written word, but Jesus himself is the living word, and it is this living word that transforms us, his spirit, working in us through the words of Scripture. So the spirit gives us revelations and gives us revelation, guides us into all truth, as Jesus promised, which we see in John 16, verse 13. So therefore, we read all of the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ, first revealed in what is called the gospel, good news accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So here's what this does not mean. It doesn't mean that the other parts of the Bible are not important. Now, actually, they flesh out the application of what Jesus said and did and give us the context and understanding why he said and did what he did. B, this does not mean that we are what Jesus said and did only people. Some people choose to only accept the gospel accounts and not any of the other parts of scripture as authoritative. And this often leads to interpretations that are out of sync with what the apostles taught. Acts 2 verse 42 says that the, the early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching. It was what the apostles taught about Jesus that the church devoted himself, themselves to. And it is what we devote ourselves to when it comes to the doctrine of the church. So we're not saying that the gospel accounts have more authority than other parts of scripture through, uh, through what I've just said. But we're only saying that this is the lens through which we look through the other parts of Scripture. Because this is the message of the gospel. Jesus born, lived, crucified, risen again, ascended to heaven. That is the message that brings life. That is the gospel message, the word of God. And Romans 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the message of the gospel that brings life, that brings salvation to people. And everything else in the Bible explains what this gospel means and how it is worked out in our lives. So now this will lead to some questions on why we can trust the Bible and what we mean by words such as inspiration and inerrancy. How can we trust the Bible is a huge question. So yeah, a couple of things that are good for you to know and to remember. Historically speaking, 
The original text of the Bible is better preserved than many other historical books we take for granted. We actually have more copies and older copies of the ancient manuscripts of the Bible than we do for any other historical book dating to such ancient times. And most of us, most people, will not dispute the writings of Aristotle or Plato, but we have more evidence of the New Testament than we have of those writings. In fact, Mark's Gospel, which dates as far back as the 3rd century, we have 14,000 copies of it, and uh, the historians have this, as opposed to something like Caesar's Gallic War, where we only have 10 copies that date much later, to 825 AD. So there's really no rational reason to dispute the authenticity of what it is that we have in our Bibles. And when Christianity began, certain letters from Paul, Peter, and the Gospel accounts, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, began to be seen as canonical, which means the rule of faith and truth. In other words, there wasn't much time for the doctrine to what was being taught then. There wasn't time for it to be corrupted. If it takes a long time for, for a, a book to be put together that is authoritative and is to represent the doctrine of a religion, it's the, if it takes a long time for that to develop, what comes through at the end is often more corrupted than what was in the beginning. But with Christianity, we don't have this. The documents that were being circulated at the time of the early church were already considered to be doctrinal and the rule of faith and truth. By the time Christianity was legalized in Rome in 313 AD, Christianity in the East and the West had already accepted 27 of the New Testament books that we have today. And that was confirmed as well at three church councils. So we can be quite confident that what we believe or what we teach today very much lines up to what they believed and taught in those days. There's a lot of things we are uncovering, and each generation has to uncover these things again. But we can be quite confident that what we have in the Bible is what was taught, is what was believed, and is the original teachings of the apostles. Number three, the Old Testament books were copied over generations and thousands of years by scribes who would work under very strict circumstances if they made a copy error. So we see the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are dated to be from 135 BCE and 73 CE, and some to the 11th century, were incredibly similar to the younger manuscripts we had before their discovery, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. There were very, very minor differences. So in other words, the reasonable conclusion is that what we have today has proven to be astonishingly accurate to what the Hebrews would have had in ancient times. If you want to find out more about the Dead Sea Scrolls, just Google it. There's plenty of information there. Number four, there is also, of course, the testimony of Christians throughout history who found the Bible teachings are true for life. So for all cultures and at all times, people like you and I have found the Bible to be relevant and to bring life. This book has never become irrelevant or outdated. The Bible still manages to provide a true account of human experience, true account of what ails us, and a true account of a solution, which is Jesus Christ. People experience what it says. So rationally speaking, there's very little reason if any reason, to dispute the reliability of the Bible, often such disputes are grounded in conspiracy theories or just unreasonable skepticism. Now let's talk about what we mean by the words revelation and inspiration. Bible is the surest, clearest, and most detailed account of God's revelation to us concerning his character, 
his salvation plan and other truth. That's what we believe. In the words of Nigel Day Lewis, the Bible is the divinely inspired, infallible, and inerrant record of all God's revelation to mankind, and is our final authority in all matters of life and doctrine. It contains everything we need to know for salvation, and nothing can or must ever be subtracted from or added to it. So when we speak of revelation inspiration, what we mean is that God, through the Holy Spirit, guided the writers of each of the 66 books of the Bible so that the end result was his word in their words. See, it is not, it is, it is not dictated. It is inspired. It's God's words in the writer's words. So this is a very specific revelation. God didn't provide a general inspiration around concepts and left it up to the writers to decide how to teach those concepts or what it all meant. But he was very specific in what it is that he wants covered through the scriptures given to us. Usually by using real life situations and stories. This is how God chose to reveal himself to us as well as the different genres which we covered in the last video. So what do we mean by the word inerrancy? It's a controversial word that often can um, mean things to people that it actually doesn't mean and is often misunderstood. And this is what we mean. A. The scriptures are without error in their original form. So what we mean by that is we understand that they're translating um, documents into different languages could result in some nuance and error. So this is, it's not easy to translate into different languages. So inerrancy does not mean that we think our English Bibles won't have minor discrepancies, but that any of these problems are not major doctrinal issues of faith. And study Bibles and even Bibles you find on the internet are very clear and transparent as to why they interpreted something somewhere, why they translated something in somewhere. And you have the tools available to you today more than ever, actually, through the internet, through many free tools available, and through many pieces of software that you can buy. And um, just by getting a study Bible in a bookstore, and there's lots of books that can help you also work through this. You have more tools than ever to understand whether something was translated in a way that is right or wrong, or that is more closer to the original meetings and uh, meanings. In the ancient times, the scriptures were copied by hand in order to preserve them. Sometimes there were also copy areas there, but they were minor. And as we look at the, the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find that based on the copies we had until when the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered, uh, which I think was in the 60s, I might be wrong, uh, what we had before that was pretty much similar and the differences were only minor. None of the differences affect Bible doctrine. B. What we mean by inerrancy is that the scriptures are without error taken into the genre of each book. This is important. Biblical inerrancy is not biblical literalism. In other words, it doesn't mean that everything we read in the Bible is to be taken literally. But we must understand the genre of the book and the verse and the, and the scripture that we are reading. And why this is important is when we start looking at um, Genesis, for example. Genesis is not trying to provide a formula for physics, but rather it's conveying to us who God is, why there is in the world, and that God was the one who created it all and created us in his image. So we form our doctrine around the Genesis account, but not necessarily our science. 
Science and faith doesn't have to be at odds. They can inform each other. But we don't form our doctrine from science, and we don't necessarily form our science from doctrine. We understand that these things must inform each other, and that science itself is a discipline that is ever-changing, ever-discovering, ever-moving, ever-reforming its ideas. C, what we mean by inerrancy, is that it is, in, it, it is inerrant in revealing God and salvation. So the scriptures are revealing what we need to know about salvation and about God. See, we don't need to know everything about the universe and time and space, or even everything about God. God's just told us what we need to know, and that is deep enough. There's a wonderful scripture in Proverbs 25 that reveals God's heart in creating us, putting us in this world, and actually giving us the, the pleasure and the joy of exploring and discovering his created universe. It's, uh, it says this, it says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God has actually made this a fun process. He hasn't just told us everything and then put us on this earth. But he's given us the joy and the privilege of discovering things, discovering who he is, discovering his creation, having questions that might never get answered, and maybe only having them answered one day. But there is a joy in discovery. There's a joy in, in the world moving forward and us uncovering new things that we didn't know before. And this is another way to think about science and scripture. Science is not scripture. I mean, scripture is not subject to us, but we are subject to scripture. And that we have to understand as Christians. When it comes to science, just understand a few things. When, uh, when we find something that appears to contradict the Bible or some new discovery, we have to understand that it's usually true that either A, the scientific theory is wrong. Skeptics sometimes would have us believe that science isn't ever wrong, but science itself as a proper discipline makes no such claim. It doesn't claim to cover every aspect of human experience and knowledge. And science claims to expect that it will change. So that's the first thing we can understand, that there might be a change. Or we can understand that the way we're reading a particular, a particular portion of Scripture may be incorrect, and we need to study it more and understand it better. So the best thing to do in those times is to be patient, is to study the Scriptures, is to get to know the science bit better, and let God lead you to a reasonable conclusion. Now, this all helps us to apply and understand the application of scriptures. So let's look at an exercise, which you will find on page 34 of this material we're going through. Genesis 3 is where we're going to. And as you read Genesis 3, ask yourself these questions. What does this portion of scripture in the Old Testament tell you about Jesus? Remember, there may be several applications, but the main application to understand is what we're seeing about Jesus in the scripture and what that means for our relationship with him. So think also about why he did what he did and why he said what he said. Write your answer down and share it with others.